from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 to 40. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to, to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Thank you, Glenn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've already sung, speak. We've heard your word. We pray that as we um, now hear from it, through the teaching of it, May you open our ears and our hearts and our minds so that we might be built up, so that your church might be built up. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you make your bed in the morning? Kids? I don't. If the louvers in your house are not all aligned perfectly when they're open, does that annoy you? <laughs> Couple of nods. Do you prefer schedule or spontaneity? Now, I have no doubt that in this gathering this morning, there would be a variety of answers to each of those questions. Some of us, we prefer structure, order, and predictability while others feel suffocated if every minute of their lives is planned out. But I reckon for most of us, given the values of uh, the culture that we live in, we are generally more afraid of too much control than we are of too much freedom. Perhaps another way of putting that is that we would rather live in the US than in North Korea. So it's worth us carefully considering our own assumptions when it comes to God's Word, especially when it comes to a passage like today's. Do we want things done our way? Or do we want them done God's way? Would we rather our way? Or would we rather the Most High way? Our text has three main sections, which we'll take one at a time. Uh, they have different emphases, but their central concern is uniform across all of them. The church is to gather God's way. Here are Paul's three concerns in this passage. Gather God's way, revelation. Gather God's way in according to the roles. And to gather God's way in recognition, in recognizing 
So let's have our Bibles and our hearts open as we begin with the longest of these three sections. The first one, Gather God's Way, Revelation. Now kids, does anyone remember our big word from last week? I know seven days is a long time, so anyone? Any adults remember it? Epiphany, that's right. Does anyone remember what it means? It was tricky, I know. (laughs) So let me remind you, these days when we use the word epiphany, it's used to refer to a new idea or something that we've just figured out. Were you going to say something? That's exactly what I was going to say, yes. Like in the cartoons, you see a bubble above the cartoon's head and the light bulb going on. I've had an epiphany. Well, last week we also talked about how uh, it can also refer to God revealing something, revealing uh, aspects of Himself. And so speaking of it this way, it means the same thing as revelation, to reveal. God speaking and revealing Himself through nature, through Jesus Christ, and through His words that have come to us through His apostles and His prophets. And so last week we saw how Paul emphasized the importance and the preference of prophecy over tongues, and how the reason that he gave for this was because prophecy builds up the church whenever it gathers. And so if you're visiting this morning uh, or you're joining us for the first time today, we did a couple of uh, topical sermons about whether these miraculous spiritual gifts continue today or whether they ceased with the death of the last apostle. Let me encourage you to have a listen to those on our church's website if you want a fuller treatment of those topics. On last week's passage, Paul made clear why prophecy is better than tongues for the uh, gathering of the church. And and continuing on from that, Paul now gives practical instructions to the Corinthians about how to practice this in the gathering of the church. Let's read verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, once again, we see Paul's concern about all things being done for the building up of the church. That has been a note that Paul has consistently sounded throughout this entire set of chapters, and we saw very clearly last week in the first half of this chapter. But what does he mean by this instruction? When we come together, we, we, each one has one of these things. You know, the gatherings of the Brethren Church, not the uh, exclusive Brethren, if you've heard of them, uh, the Brethren Church are primarily shaped by this verse. There's no formal structure, but each comes and someone might suggest a hymn from the hymn book, uh, or somebody might get up and uh, share something from Scripture or share a prayer. Should we be doing the same? If it is our desire, if we do want to gather God's way... Is that what we ought to be doing? Well, the first thing to note is that this verse comes in the particular context of what was happening in the Corinthian church. As we've seen, Paul is addressing what seems to be some significant abuse of the spiritual gifts, especially tongues. And so here, he isn't writing a detailed, complete manual of church order. This is not his, uh, you know, definitive final, this is how you ought to gather, uh, and, and this is the only thing that you must pay attention to. As a matter of fact, we see him describe different aspects of uh, the church gathering at different points throughout this letter. You see that in chapters 5 and chapter 11. And so the wrong practice of spiritual gifts is what Paul is addressing here. So this verse, verse 26, is setting the tone for what he's about to say in terms of how these gifts should be practiced. There should be an order to what happens with these elements of the gathering, and their purpose should be for the building up of the church. That's Paul's big point in verse 26. As I mentioned last week, uh, when Paul uses the term revelation, he's most likely using it to refer to uh, uh, the same thing as prophecy, which would explain why the word prophecy is not in this list. I mean, he's just talked about the importance of prophecy. Why would he suddenly not include that? And because you can only prophesy if you have the gift, then it would be limited to those who have the gift. 
It's worth us asking ourselves, did the gatherings of the church in the apostolic era look different to what they look like today? Well, surely the answer is yes. As someone who believes that the miraculous spiritual gifts are no longer in operation today, I don't have a problem with that. There is necessarily going to be a difference between how the early church gathered and how we gather today. We need not feel like we're being disobedient to God if our church gatherings are different to that of the early church. What we ought to do is obey what God intends for us today from this passage. And verse 26 is a good example of that. See, firstly, if those gifts have ceased, then out of the five things that Paul mentions, only two of them are things that we can actually bring to the gathering today, a song and a lesson or a teaching. Just like the list of spiritual gifts, these aren't the only elements of church gathering that a church gathering can have. In addition, the rest of the New Testament reveals that the offices of overseer or elder in the church whose primary responsibility is to teach the Word. And so it flows on that the elders have oversight over the teaching that happens in the gathering. And that occurs right throughout all the elements, not just from what I'm doing today, but through the, through the songs that we sing, through the, the things that we recite together as the church. And that's what we practice here at our church. So, putting it together, the unfolding revelation of the New Testament adds more to the story than just verse 26. But it's worth noting that the preparedness of each of the members of the church and their contributions are still things that we should desire to have today. This is why we have members of the church reading Scripture and praying and leading the singing it's why I'm always asking for input for uh, my sermons and for suggestions of songs that we could sing together that are related to the passage that we're looking at in the morning. That is how we capture the essence of verse 26, that sense of preparedness of each member to our gathering. And in describing that, surely one of the big differences between our gatherings and what we read about here in chapter 14 is obvious. Our final authority today is the written revelation of God's Word. Remember, both cessationists and continuationists who believe in sola scriptura agree on this, that the Bible is our final authority it's what you do with the next verses that makes a difference. Let's read from verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Now, for somebody who believes that the gift of tongues continues... These are really important verses. Sadly, one of the dangers of the charismatic movement today is precisely what Paul is actually speaking against in these chapters. The gatherings, and especially the use of tongues, was getting out of control. It's interesting to me that Paul limits the, the tongue speaking to, at most, three. And as we saw last week, only if there's an interpretation. Without one, don't even bother. So even though he said earlier in chapter 14 that, that praying in a tongue is praying with one's spirit and not with one's mind, he seems to make it clear here that the person speaking the tongue doesn't suddenly lose control of themselves. Oh, here it comes, the manifestation of the spirit, can't stop it, can't hold it in. No, Paul is, is saying that the tongue's speaker is able to ensure that they keep a lid on that. And he'll say the same thing about prophesying later. If there is no interpreter, let the tongue speaker speak to themselves and to God. And that echoes what he said earlier about tongues building up the speaker and speaking to God, which he said in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 14. 
And so the sense of what we get here is that any exercise of tongue speaking and interpretation should be done in an orderly and a limited way. One at a time. Two or three at most. Oh, what about prophecy? Let's read on from verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, Paul doesn't limit the number of prophets here by saying, at most. But given the parallel with verse 27, I think that is exactly what he is doing. Limiting the number of it as well. And this instruction here in verse 29 is really one of the key verses for, you might remember, Wayne Grudem's definition of prophecy being merely human words brought to mind by God. He says, if a prophecy needs to be weighed, then surely that means that the prophecy could be wrong. Well, that makes sense, right? We use the term ourselves. We weigh things. You weigh up options. If you're weighing something up, you're considering whether it's true or right, or whether you're considering it, whether it's good for you or not. It seems like an obvious reading. But as always, we should be led and guided by God's revelation in Scripture. As I pointed out in our topical sermons, nowhere does the Bible indicate to us that prophecy is ever something that can fail. God's Word always accomplishes what it's supposed to. That's what Isaiah 55, 11 says. Nor is there a situation in the Bible where a prophet wasn't sure about what God was saying. The prophet and the prophecy is always clear, even if the hearers reject it. Or even if the prophet himself disobeys it, like Jonah did. Jonah's problem was not that he got God's message wrong, it's that he didn't want to do it. And there are many, many examples of God's people rejecting God's words to them. But nowhere do we see that a true prophet is uncertain or unsure about what God is saying. Nor do we find an example of a true prophet hearing God incorrectly and needing to later clarify what he said. Instead, what we do have are instructions in Scripture as to how the people of Israel were supposed to weigh prophecies. And we find that in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, as we saw a few weeks back. The criteria for assessing whether a prophecy was genuine or not from someone who claims to be a prophet were, one, did it come true? Two, does it agree with former revelation that God has given? And three, does it call them to follow God or to follow idols? And you can tell, and they could discern by asking these things, whether the prophet was a true prophet or a false one. Now, it seems pretty clear to me that this is the kind of weighing that Paul would be referring to. So if we already have an example of how prophecy is weighed in the Bible, then it's worth asking ourselves why we should look for a different definition of how we ought to obey verse 29. Now, if the text demands it, then certainly. But if it doesn't, and the rest of Scripture points in a certain direction, then we should let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so the kind of weighing that Paul is talking about here is not weighing whether the person prophesying is hearing God correctly or not. No, it is a weighing of whether the so-called prophet was a true or a false prophet. Notice how the Apostle John expresses a similar thing in his letter, where he says, test the spirits. Why? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So when we get to Paul's instruction to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, where he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, then it makes perfect sense. Paul is instructing the early church, while this gift of prophecy was still active, to make sure that they carefully weighed the words of those who claimed to prophesy. 
And if Paul could presume that the Thessalonians and Corinthians knew what he meant by weighing the prophecies and testing them based on what had already been revealed in the Word of God, then it makes sense that he would need not elaborate further on what that means and how to do that. Picture the situation in Corinth. All of these amazing miracles that we read about in the book of Acts are happening. Peter walks up to the lame man at the gate beautiful and says, rise up and walk, and he does. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 lie to the Holy Spirit. They are struck down dead by God in that moment. Paul uh, gives a part of his handkerchief to somebody uh, and, and they take it to a far off place and that person is healed by simply touching it. Imagine being in that kind of context, in that kind of situation with all of these manifestations of the Spirit happening, going on. God is speaking again through the prophets in a way that hasn't happened since the Old Testament times. How do you make sense of what's going on? How do you test whether this Jesus character really was the promised Messiah? How do you weigh when you don't have the closed canon in the New Testament that we have, but you do have the apostles still around? Well, firstly, they had the Old Testament. They had, I'd say, half the closed canon, but that's, it's longer than the New Testament, so like two-thirds. Half categorically, you could say. And the Bereans in Acts 17, they were commended for checking to see whether what Paul said agreed with the confirmed and tested scripture that they already had. They faithfully weighed the way Deuteronomy instructed them to. Secondly, as Paul says to the Galatians, they could weigh the very message that Paul delivered. They knew its content and they knew what to measure it against. Paul was saying, even if I come back to you and start saying something completely different, then I would be accursed. Because the gospel message is what is true. And finally, as we'll see later in this passage, they also have Paul's own revelation as an apostle of Jesus. You can see how weighing prophecies might have been a tricky and difficult task in this time. And given that the church in Galatia had so quickly abandoned the true gospel, it's clear that the early church had its own struggle in remaining true to it. As for us, the task of weighing prophecies is to weigh the God-breathed writings of the apostles and the prophets to determine which are genuine words from the Lord. You see, we have the privilege now of having had thousands of years of discernment and textual criticism and faithful members of the body of Christ wrestling with this question. And that allows us to rest confidently in the text that God has providentially given us today. That is how we weigh. Now, it took a long time on verse 29, but that is an important verse. Paul continues his instructions on how to maintain order in the Corinthian church by indicating that prophecy does not need to happen all at once. The purpose of these verses seems to be a problem of Corinthian prophets thinking that if they received this manifestation from the Spirit, then they couldn't stop themselves. So Paul makes it clear that they have control over their spirits and can sit down if a revelation is made to another one. And verse 33 summarizes Paul's driving concern in this passage. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The same God who created the whole universe and sustains its order, who at the very beginning created human beings in perfect harmony and union with Him, who established order in their very beings creating them male and female to reflect aspects of himself. The very God who is Lord over all creation and who is Lord of order is the same God that we worship and that we proclaim in our lives whenever we gather together as his people. Verse 33 is a reminder that even in the very way that we meet 
God is glorified and His nature is reflected. The order of the gatherings of the church reflects God's nature. As I've said before, that word peace is a theologically significant one. And it makes perfect sense in this context. Peace, you might remember, in Hebrew thought, is about more than just an absence of conflict. We today might pray for peace in Russia and the Ukraine, meaning we want the war to stop. But in Hebrew thought, it is about all things being, it's not just that, it is also things being as they should be, being as God intended. It would not surprise me at all if that is what was in Paul's mind as he penned this verse. God is honored when we do things and live as He designed. Are you the kind of person who likes to follow instructions? Perhaps when you get a piece of, uh, or many pieces of IKEA furniture or other furniture? Kids, what about you with Lego? Who's, who's, a, who's an I follow instructions kind of Lego put togetherer? Oh, really? Only two? Three? Yeah, a few. Who, who likes to just make stuff? Out of, yeah, yeah, a few more. Well, whether you prefer to just, you know, get everything out of the box, whether it's Lego or furniture, and just, you know, put together according to the instructions or do it the way you think, I'll just figure it out and see what happens. Uh, you know, uh, all power to you to do that if that's, <laughs> if that's your personality. You see, it's one thing to be like that with furniture or with Lego. I mean, in this case, in this instance, it doesn't really matter what you prefer. But when it comes to putting together a life of faithful obedience to God, then doing it according to His instructions is essential. I appreciate that this can be challenging for us as 21st century Australians for a few reasons. We love our individuality and we're generally leery of authority. But if those values are what shape us when it comes to the gathering of the church, when it comes to living lives that are ordered and pleasing to God, then what is captivating our hearts is not God, but ourselves. Brothers and sisters, have you considered that in the same way that creation in all of its wonder and order and beauty, how it reflects the glory of God, the gathering of the church done God's way does the same? Do you look around when we gather together on the Lord's day as you participate and sing and hear the word and pray and respond and partake of the Lord's Supper? Do you breathe it all in and marvel at this mighty God who created all things by his word and also called us out of darkness and into his glorious light through the power of his gospel? God's order and his peace his grand and beautiful and wondrous design is seen in the church gathering His way. Now, there are going to be certain aspects of our gatherings that are you know, not spoken about specifically in Scripture and are a matter of wisdom. So, for example, should we do what many evangelical churches do today and sing three songs and have 20-minute sermons few announcements? Or should we do what George Whitfield did and have gatherings that went for over three hours and included over 20 songs? I don't know, kids, do you have a preference? Yeah. <laughs> As I mentioned before, this is one of the reasons why God has given the church overseers in the church to lead in striving to be biblically wise in these things. And elders are not infallible, of course, which is why we are always inviting your feedback, especially if there is some biblical wisdom that we perhaps have missed. But our heart's desire is always that we would gather God's way. And this is why where we land on spiritual gifts is so important. 
I read an article the other week by Jason Meyer, who was the pastor who took over from uh, John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist Church. He talked about his struggle as being uh, what he called, and what many call, an open but, but cautious continuationist. You know, they, they recognize some of the excesses, some of the abuses of these spiritual gifts in the charismatic movement, but they, they exegetically, theologically cannot uh, take the cessationist position from Scripture. And so they describe themselves as all open but cautious. Don't want to go down the excess, excesses, but still want to be faithful to the Word. But in his mind, he was finding that he was more cautious than open. He described himself as a functional cessationist. And he admitted that if he really did believe this, then he shouldn't, be ju- he shouldn't just be open, but he should actually be eagerly desiring prophecy. After all, this is what Paul instructs the Corinthians to do more than once. And as a pastor, it is therefore his responsibility to ensure that the gatherings of the church not only leave room for, uh, for words of prophecy, not only leave room for the possibility of this happening, but, but he should be encouraging these words of prophecy. He should be uh, put, uh, striving and, and exhorting the believers to seek them, to desire them. And if that's your conviction about these gifts and you, you want to gather God's way, then that is surely not optional. I really appreciated his honesty because if I shared his convictions, then I would feel the same way. Were I and our elders to have those convictions, then we would have to create room and encourage and spur all of us on to pursue the gifts of prophecy and tongues and interpretation. Anything less would be disobedience to Scripture. But as I've made clear in my position, my conscience is clear. I do believe we're gathering God's way as far as we are able And we are not being disobedient to these chapters because in God's design, those gifts are no longer operating in our midst. That's an important application to think about wherever you land on these issues. But whatever you think about spiritual gifts, the underlying theological truth remains. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of of peace. And that must always be evident. To gather God's way means to gather around His revelation and to gather in line with that revelation. And He's made it clear that our gatherings are to be ordered because He's not a God of confusion, but of peace. But, I hear you say, if God is not a God of confusion... Why did he let Paul write these next few sentences? That brings us to our second section. Gather God's way roles. If you come across somebody today who wants to tell you that the Bible is backwards and outdated and no longer applicable to us and misogynistic, they may very well bring up these verses. Often they're given without context, And they don't even need to be explained to see why they're out of step with today's values. Now, as Christians, we ought to recognize that these are confronting verses. At worst, they sound like Paul is instructing the oppression of women, something that many people have been fighting against for many decades. And for good reason. The Bible does not teach that women should be oppressed. But as we've done with all of these chapters, it's important to hear them in context and understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthians before we get to how that applies to us today. Let's read from the second half of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The first thing to note is that whatever Paul is saying here, it is a universal point. This happens in all the churches, Paul says, and then he uses the law to verify his point. As we saw last week when he quoted from Isaiah, the law 
uh, was generally used to refer to all of Old Testament Scripture. So we need to ask ourselves, is Paul putting a blanket ban on women speaking at all in the church? Well, one problem with this view is that if he is, well, he's contradicting himself. Because just a few chapters earlier in chapter 11, Paul has made it clear to the Corinthians that women pray and prophesy in the gathering. Those two things require speaking. And his concern there wasn't to stop them from doing that, but to ensure that they did it rightly. And so we need to look more closely at this passage for an answer. As I've said, his concern in this chapter is that the church gatherings of the Corinthians, his, the problem was that they were hotbeds of confusion and chaos. And he wanted to show that God's design was not that. Notice how in verse 28, Paul actually instructs the tongue speaker who doesn't have an interpretation to keep silent in the church. The language mirrors that of his instruction to the women in verse 34. And the fact that Paul then goes on to talk about them being in submission as the law says, and he uses the language of it being shameful for a woman to speak in church in verse 35, those are hints as to what Paul is likely talking about. Notice, interestingly, even as he talks about the tongue speaker keeping silent and then yet goes on to say, but you know, he can pray to himself and to God. There's clearly something that Paul is uh, seeking to, is, is most concerned about in the gathering of the church. When Paul says, uh, when he brings in the law in verse 35 and says, as the law says, he doesn't actually quote where from in Scripture that comes from. I remember reading through this and then thinking, hang on a second, where's, what's he saying? Well, in chapter 11, if you go back, he hints at Genesis 1 and 2. And if we flick over to 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 13, we see him give an explicit reference to the Genesis creation narrative uh, in, in, that we find in Genesis 2 and 3. Now, I'm not planning on trying to make sense of those verses for us this morning. You're welcome to talk to me later about them if you like. But I point them out simply to say that when Paul says the law... In this section of 1 Corinthians, this is most likely what he has in mind. That's why we read Genesis earlier. God has created the universe with a design, including men and women, and how they relate to one another in marriage. Paul's points and concern in 1 Timothy is that of women submitting to the authority of men. And here in 1 Corinthians, his concern seems to be more specifically and primarily about that dynamic of the relationship in marriage. What makes this even more likely is that he has already talked about these husband and wife roles in chapter 11 and how it refers to the then cultural practice of head coverings for both men and women. Remember the context. Paul is addressing a church gathering which is disorderly and confusing. And so in my mind, given all of these factors, the most likely scenario that Paul is addressing here is that some of the women in the gathering, most likely certain wives, were speaking out of turn and in a disorderly way. Perhaps the same way that the tongue speakers and the prophets were doing over one another at the same time. If you've ever been to a food market, you might get a bit of an idea of what it was like. You ever been to a food market, kids? The food market's... Do we even have one in Darwin? I don't even... Do we? I've never been. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I have. I have. There's one at Rapid Creek. It's on Sundays. That's why I've never been. don't go very often. But it's not as crazy. It's like some of the big food markets, there are people like yelling over the top of each other, saying things. And, and uh, sorry, I'm, I'm throwing back to last week again. Does anyone remember that Asterix character? And What's his name? Cacophonix. That's right, cacophonics. And that comes from the word cacophony. If you picture a market with all of those sounds coming, you get really indistinct voices, you can't really make sense of what's being said. That's what cacophony means. It's a messy mashup of voices. That might give us a sense of what the Corinthian gatherings were looking and sounding like. 
And so as Paul did in chapter 11, he reminds the Corinthians of how the truth of God's word, that a wife is to submit to her husband, is outworked in their culture by not speaking out of turn in a disorderly way during the gathering of the church. So this isn't a blanket ban on women speaking at all. It's a ban on women speaking in a disorderly way, and particularly that dishonors God's design of male headship in marriage. Now, if that is the principle, then how do we work that out in our culture today? Well, there may not be much different, to be honest. As you already saw in our gathering this morning, we encourage women to publicly pray in our church gathering. If another woman, uh, another woman, another woman were to start yelling over the top of that, then I think we would all agree that that would be disorderly. And to be honest, if a man did the same thing, that would also be disorderly, and we would discourage that too. Perhaps the key difference in our day and age is that we would encourage all women, including wives, to continue learning even during the gathering. You can ask questions before or after or during lunch or at question time, and you don't have to wait to ask your husbands at home if you have a question. And one of the reasons we encourage this is because of our culture. A woman speaking to others at appropriate times in a church gathering in our cultural context does not dishonor her husband's headship. Ladies, you already know this, but let me be clear. You are allowed to talk when you come to church. I have not yet seen one of our women not talk when we come to church. I've not seen anyone do that, to be honest. I want to encourage you to talk when you come to church. And I also want to encourage you to learn and to ask questions when you come to church. Feel free to ask other members and ask our elders questions about anything from our gathering. But of course, ensure that it is done in a way that honors the order and structure of our time together. Wives, is there room for you to consider whether there are areas in your marriage where you are not submitting to your husband? Are Sundays filled with frustration and bucking against his headship because he's not doing things the way you want him to? God has given you him to lead and to guide and to nurture the spiritual health of your family. It is God's design for you to submit to him in that. Now, let me be clear. You submit to your husband as he submits to Christ. Where he does not do that, you go over his head and you submit to Christ. And husbands, may I remind you that you are to lead in a Christ-like way. As Ephesians 5 reminds us. Which is to say, you lay down your life for your wife's sanctification. What are you doing so that your wife may learn? Both at home and in preparation for the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day? Are you making sacrifices for her so that she is not flustered and unable to concentrate in church? Do you help look after and prepare the kids so that she can be mentally and spiritually prepared before she even walks through the doors of the building? Do you read the morning's Bible passage with her on a Saturday night and discuss some of her questions or thoughts from it with her. Those things will take sacrifice. Will you follow Christ in them? I must admit this is something I need to get much better at. At the moment, I'm often still preparing things on a Sunday morning and I leave the entire running of the household and the children to Robin. I need to get better at that. 
I should be doing everything I possibly can to give her the best opportunity to learn and grow and benefit from our time together as the church. Husbands and wives, this building up of one another, it honors the Lord. And it builds up the rest of the church as they see and benefit from marriages and families striving to live out their roles according to God's way. Single guys, are you preparing yourselves for a life of sacrifice in order that your potential future wife may learn and grow? You have so many opportunities right now to look to Christ and to follow in His footsteps in laying down your life for the sake of the growth of others, other members in our church, the kids of our church, other Christian friends in your life. Let that be a pattern of your life now so that if the Lord brings along a godly woman whom you have the privilege of marrying, you are already well-practiced. Single girls, have you considered what Scripture teaches with regards to headship and submission? As difficult as this teaching is in our culture today, are you willing to submit to Christ in it? Are you looking for a godly man that you may joyfully submit to who will encourage and nurture the growth of your walk with Jesus? Brothers and sisters, none of this comes naturally to us because of our sin. And it's only made worse by the fact that we are being indoctrinated by a culture to think that this is the wrong design. We prefer our way over God's way. But when you look to Christ and you see that earthly marriage is about reflecting the glorious marriage between Christ and His bride, His church, and you see how much He laid down His life for us and how the only sensible and natural response is to surrender our lives to Him in the roles that He has given us, even if it goes against our very nature, our desires, the things that we want, then it starts to become clearer. Ask for His gracious work in your heart so that you might walk His way. See, the temptation is always so strong to let our way be the final authority. But God has not left us to wonder about who has the final say. And that brings us to our final section, recognition. Kids, I've got one last question for you. Have you ever thought that you know more than your teacher? Anyone? <laughs> You're a good girl. Have you ever been confident enough to challenge your teacher on something that they have said? Nope. Well, now I'm, I'm certainly not encouraging that, especially because many of you are homeschooled and your teachers are present. And they would not be happy with me. Now, I hope the teachers understand that, look, if you really did have, you know, anyway. Well, kids, let me ask you, do you think you'd be confident enough to do that if your teacher was God? De definitely not, right? Definitely not. Well, to wrap up this whole section of chapters 12 to 14, Paul reminds the Corinthians that he speaks on God's behalf. And to challenge what he is saying is to challenge God himself. Let's read from verse 36. 
Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. It was a long time ago when we preached through the earlier chapters of this letter. But if you weren't there or you can't remember, Paul confronted the rock star public speakers in Corinth who thought of themselves as superior to Paul. Given that the gift of prophecy was in operation then, and there was a bit of this sort of Paul is inferior attitude floating around, then it's not surprising, I think, to read his words here. And Paul reminds them in verse 36 that the apostles are the ones who were entrusted first with the Word of God. And he reminds them that the Corinthians aren't the only church in existence. But what he then goes on to say is a very bold claim. Either Paul is extremely confident, perhaps even arrogant, or he simply knows that the Lord has chosen him to speak authoritatively on his behalf. Well, I'm going with the latter. Once again, this verse is used to suggest that prophecy can be incorrect, but all Paul is getting at is the fact that a true prophet will agree with him and a false prophet will not. A true prophet recognizes Paul's authority. If they do not recognize his authority, he is not recognized. They are a false prophet. A true follower of the Lord recognizes his true messengers. Again, we have the privilege of having had 2,000 years of church history happen before we were even born. And so we can stand on the shoulders of giants who have done the hard work of discerning what really is inspired scripture and genuine words from the Lord. But that does not mean that we won't need to revisit these things in each generation. Some of you, like me, are old enough to remember when the Da Vinci Code was at its peak of popularity. It's incredible to think that a work of fiction could so capture the imagination that people think that it must be true. And Christians then had to give reasons for why we don't accept other writings like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip or other texts that our ancestors rejected. It's good for us to know, as far as we can, why we recognize the Apostle Paul's authority and his writings and not others. And though this might seem like a random thing for Paul to say at this point, it once again shows God's design and his order. You see, God is not a God of confusion. One of the ways we know that is because he speaks through his apostles upon whom the church is built. And we are a people built on the revelation of God. My kids have been learning the Young Baptist's Catechism for the last couple of years. And uh, Zai, who's only four years old, he's only recently begun this journey. So this week, when all the girls were out of the house for an evening, decided to, to try and help him learn some of the earlier ones and, and get started on the... Um, I mean, he sits with us and, and is a part of it, but haven't specifically worked with him. And so this week, we worked on questions two and three from that catechism. Question two says, how do we know God exists? Kids, you don't want to have a guess, even if you haven't learned it. How do we know God exists? That, oh, you've put two questions together, but that's okay. He reveals himself to us. That's right. That's the answer to question two. And so naturally, the, question, answer, the next question is, how does he reveal himself to us? Good job, Mia. He reveals himself th through nature, the Bible, and Jesus Christ. You see, this is why our church gatherings are centered around the Word. This is why we drink from the well of God's Word to nourish our souls every time we get together. See, prior to the Reformation, in most Roman Catholic churches, the centerpiece of the gathering was communion. For most of their time together, people didn't even listen to what the priest was saying. Most, and that was also because it was in a language that they didn't even speak. 
and they would just be talking to one another while other parts of this service was going on. And that's because for them, what mattered most was showing up, getting your bit of Jesus' body and blood, and then you were good to go. It's worth noting, in many uh, Catholic churches, that is still, the, well, in, in all, that is still the centerpiece of the Mass. And so, therefore, the message of the Gospel, which Paul will immediately go on to clarify next, in next chapter, which we'll see next week, that was not the message that they lived and abided by in their lives or in their churches. Brothers and sisters, as we seek to walk the high way, as we seek to walk God's way and not our way, we recognize that God has given us what we need in order to do what we need to right here in His revealed Word. And that's why in everything that we say and we do together, we honor God by submitting to His revelation. Paul finishes off this chapter and indeed the whole of chapters 12 to 14 with these summary comments from verse 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. You might recognize that instruction from the very start of chapter 14, which we saw last week. And Paul again adds in the reminder of the validity of tongues speaking. But just as he did a few times last week, he finishes with the even more important point. All things should be done decently and in order. Friends, God is glorified in our submission to Him and to His way. Yet we notice a fundamental difficulty in trying to do that, don't we? Because after God created all things, including us human beings, rather than choosing to live according to God's order and God's way, our first parents decided that they wanted individual freedom and chaos instead. And that is something that every human being since, including ourselves, has inherited. For those of us who don't like to go along with the crowds and would rather blaze our own trail, we find our hearts resistant to God's way. For those of us who take pride in living by the book and want to be known as the one who never put a foot wrong, if we spend even just a few minutes in self-reflection, we soon realize that our rule-keeping could never rise to the standard of absolute perfection. We need one who will save us from ourselves, one who will bring us peace, one who himself would keep God's law perfectly, not just in what he did, but in what he thought and in what he felt and who would do so not so that he could boast in his moral perfection, but so that he could restore our broken relationship with God. It is in turning from our sin and putting our trust in Jesus that we might receive God's peace. It is in believing in him that we discover the way life was supposed to be. Surely you have felt that. Surely you have felt that nagging feeling that things just aren't the way they are supposed to be. If that is you this morning and you don't know Jesus, let me invite you to turn to him and to receive his peace by his marvelous grace. We cannot find true peace outside of God's way. We will never grasp it by ignoring Him and thinking that our ways are better of seeking salvation in our own strength. Nor will we find it in thinking that we can earn it through perfect obedience. No, the only way is through His mercy, which He has shown us in Jesus. It is in surrender to God that we can even have a hope to live lives individually and together as His church 
that are in accord with his will. And in so doing, God is honored. Brothers and sisters, if you feel suffocated by God's way, or if you feel weighed down by it, look to Christ and all that He has done for you. And remember that one day, this battle for true peace in Him will come to an end, and we will run completely unhindered by the weight of this world. We will run completely unhindered by the desire to go our way instead of God's way. And on that day, our way will perfectly become His way. On that day, true peace in the fullest sense of the word will be ours. And on that day, we will gladly, joyfully leave our way behind and walk the highway for eternity. Until then, how might we take the next step on that highway today. Let's pray. Father, since the fall, we have desired our way. We have rejected your order We have thought of ourselves as far better. Please, Lord, forgive us. Help us to see that peace can only come in Christ. Help us to turn from our own so-called wisdom And trust instead in yours, in what you have revealed to us, and what you have given us. Father, may your spirit be at work in each of our hearts and lives as we discern and live this out as your people, as the bride of Christ in the here and now. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.